You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Lefsetz Podcast. My guest today is CEO and President of Live Nation, the one and only Michael Rapino. Michael, good to have you on the podcast. You just announced this new effort, Vibe. What exactly is it? Vibe is a destination um, event company. As you know, you probably read over the years, there's more and more of these on-location companies where they're kind of taking the current events doing a special package vip maybe it's a destination to see lionel richie just in cabo for a thousand people um so anyway you can kind of create above and beyond special experiences around an artist uh event so it could be a current event meaning we could do it at Lollapalooza and do a a, a jet and a backstage and a vip package but most of it is trying to create destination events for artists and fans to have kind of an exceptional VIP experience. So what is already booked for Vibe? Well, we got a few going on. We've, we've got a hotel in Cancun, Mexico, Moon Palace, Luke Bryan, the Grateful Dead have done it there, where it's a kind of a 3,000 limited package for 3,000 people, take over the hotel, special um, two days, live performance, just for those fans, merchandise parties. We got a couple ship ideas that we've been working on. Holy ship, where you can go on a, a, an insomniac EDC uh, ship for three days. So you've seen some of these before where the artists take over the ship um, and kind of have that destination idea. So we've got three or four ship projects right now with EDC insomniac. We've got some C Cabo M Mexican, uh, Luke Bryan, Grateful Dead adventures and now we've got Lollapalooza we launched today 
and um, some of Vegas ideas that I think lo they'll launch this week around special Formula One concert VIP experiences. So just taking the experience VIP above and beyond what you currently could buy at a typical concert uh, and delivering a, a higher end experience to the fan. You know, just staying on this, it appears most people don't know, but the most expensive tickets go first on most of these concerts. Is there any limit to what people will pay for a VIP experience? You know, I think it's it's all new territory. You were right. The house always sells front to back. So you've never heard me say, I, you know, I can't sell the front, but the back sold out. Um, so it's always front to back. And, and what you see a lot of artists doing today, even though they get a little bit of press from it, is charge a bit more for the front. So the real theory is you can actually charge a bit less on the back and make sure that last row does sell out. But right now, Bob, we've seen coming out of covid price resistance is not uh we haven't seen it anywhere yet it is as crazy as some of the secondary stuff you see online where they're two three hundred times what a face value is uh, those things are selling out instantly so we have not seen yet i don't think the top end of what does a concert vip platinum experience look like um if you want to go see that show i think this is new you know as i said to my team We've kind of been operating like American Airlines for a long time. One price, not that much of a variance from top to bottom. Um, probably a warm beer and a cold hot dog and, and good luck. Um, but the, the idea that a concert is a memorable experience and, and fans will, will, will pay for an upgraded experience. All fans, not just, uh, this isn't just for the rich. The, the one or two times a year you'll go to that show. Our fans want a better experience. They want a higher end experience and they'll pay for it if we can deliver it. Okay. Needless to say, Ticketmaster is a hot topic in the news in Washington, D.C. You are literally at the epicenter. So let's kind of drill down. Explain for the average person how ticket fees are established. Yeah, I'd say... Uh, it's definitely been the year to to, uh, to start talking about this because it's been, as you you pointed out on your newsletter, you kind of understand the inner work. So if you step back in the simplest context, a venue, wherever you are, decides who is going to be their ticketing company. Generally, that venue and the irony of this idea that we have control, generally that venue is a billionaire that is building a billion dollar plus arena or stadium. Um SoFi Stadium here in LA. You name the, the place, the San Francisco New Arena. So you're the you're you have a sports team generally, um, and you call us, you call SeatGeek, you call Access, and say, I want an RFP to be who's going to be the exclusive ticketing company for my business. Um, not not everybody knows what an RFP is. Please uh, explain that. They're gonna they're gonna call all of us and say we want you to bid on the rights to be the exclusive ticketing company for our venue, and Generally, 90% of the time, here are the terms. You're, we don't get paid on season tickets. That's a big uh, uh, unknown to the industry. So we do all that 125 million tickets that are season tickets. Uh, we, don't, we don't get paid on as a ticketing company. And you get paid on the single ticket, the, the one-off ticket for the game or the concert. Um, and the venue then dictates how much of the ticket fee they're going to keep and how much they'll pay you. 
and how how big this ticket fee will be. And that's kind of well, the well, let's let's go a little bit slower. Right. They send out the RFP request, the request where you're basically bidding. Yes. What would typically be in that bid and what would the varying competitors put in the bid such that the venue might choose one or the other? Well, there's a, there's a fu- fundamental technology basic program to it. Can you do these things for my, t- my team, my venue? Maybe it's multiple teams. Uh, and, and every team, uh, geez, we're dealing with the, the Clippers right now. That's a very technical uh, RFP because Balmer and Microsoft background is very different or working with Mark Cuban in, 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 um, in Dallas. So, um, it, it usually a technical basic basis to the, to the, to the bid, what they want to get done with that, uh, with the ticketing company. that has got to work with this CRM company. It's got to work with their food and beverage. It's got to work with their access. Um, it's got to work with their charity. So they kind of a long technical spec on can your, Ticket company deliver all of these different needs we have uh, amongst our businesses. That's the that's probably the fifty percent of it. Then the next part is going to be how are you going to how are you going to market and sell incremental tickets for us? How are you going to help us deliver our business? And again, that's going to vary, Bob. As you know, if you're the the hot team that sells out in a minute, that's different. Um, if you're the Phoenix hockey team, you're looking for the best marketing partner you can to help you sell tickets. So again, it'll vary on how much the marketing and the and the marketplace you have uh, matters to the team. And then let's call the final piece the financial. How much um, are, are how low how low will you deliver the business for? Um, will you give us an advance against that? A bonus? And is it three five years? Um, they'll they'll usually dictate those kind of terms. So it's technical marketing marketplace and then financial. Okay, most venues, if not all, do want an advance. Isn't that correct? Yeah, most of them are going to ask for uh, some version of a of an advance or a bonus based on getting the contract. Okay, an advance would be recoupable, and a bonus would not be. Yes. Okay. So going back to where we were earlier, the venue is telling you how much the fee is going to be? Yes. Yeah, the venue is going to define, you know, it's kind of evolved over the last five, 10 years. It used to be, you know, when Fred Fred was on your call, you know, it was easy in Fred's days, they would just say, you know, add another dollar to the service fee and uh, and we'll split it 50-50. Today it's kind of working backwards where the venue says, I'll pay you three, four dollars a ticket, and then we're gonna keep all the upside and we're gonna charge 46, 37, whatever the service fee is. So it's still uh, evolving, but generally the, the the net number is determined by the venue because the venue has a net takeaway that they want to take home from the ticketing business, whether it's a percentage or whether it's a um a fee. Okay. And they established it themselves, and Ticketmaster has no negotiation with that to raise it or lower it. No, and again, I'm you know we can come we can come to the part where I am the venue Live Nation, so I can I can walk in that shoe later. Um, but no, it is a it, it, you know a, 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 although it doesn't seem like it on Twitter at times, um, it's a competitive process. I mean, you have. You know, we're just we just lost uh, the stadium in Washington to SeatGeek. 
So what they ask for, someone will pay, whether it's us, AEG, uh, Access, StubHub, uh, SeatGeek. Um, so if they want to pay someone $2.50 a ticket, I can go back and say, no, I want four and I want the service fee to be lower, but they'll go, someone else will be standing next door to me that says, we'll do it for $2.50 and charge $36. Bucks. So, okay. If, if I own an arena in a major market, generally speaking, what is the advance in, a, in dollars? Uh, you know, on a, it's the team part that's important that drives most of the economics. So, um, could be a multi-million dollar advance anywhere from zero to ten million dollars could be over uh, for for a longer term contract okay so they're telling you what the fee is going to be but if someone is buying let's focus on concert tickets where most of the controversy is yep the fee is not the same for every ticket usually more expensive tickets have a higher fee. Can you explain that? Yeah, I think historically it's been a percentage. If you look at macro, uh, the ticket percentage is somewhere in the 20 to 25% on average. So you're right. If it's a $10 ticket, it's $250. If it's a $200 ticket, it's 20% of that. Um, Sometimes it can scale from 20 to maybe 30, 30-ish percent on the top end. Um, But it's a percentage scaling that's set set out from the beginning and it goes up um, as the ticket price goes up okay so let's just say to you have round numbers and this would be extremely low the fee is ten dollars out of that ten dollars they are going to pay Ticketmaster a certain number which is negotiated in advance yes and okay so I buy a ticket. Which, which by the way, because we're public, we say it out loud, we would typically get two of that $10. They would get eight. Right. Which is the real unknown, right? That's where the, you know, you, 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 you would assume because we have to take the punch that says it's the Ticketmaster service fee um, that we get more of it. And that's the biggest kind of unknown to date. Okay. When I buy a ticket, there are multiple fees. There is, you know, the convenience fee and other fees. So typically under this paradigm where you have given an advance to an arena, what would be all the fees in the ticket? As a percentage? No, no. When you have negotiated with a building, we're using the example of $10, which is low. You get $2, let's say. But when the customer goes to buy the ticket, there are more fees than $10. There are additional fees. What are those? Could depend. You could have a facility fee, which the venue would charge. That would be all of their fee. Um, so venues have a facility fee. Um, credit card fee is separate. That's a small percentage. That is exactly what it is. It goes to the credit card company. Um, and it might, there might be, or it might be dressed in a ordering fee, which covers the, the ordering fee, which would be the credit card fee within that, that might be three, four percent as an ordering fee where covers a credit card fee and the venue and Ticketmaster would split that on that same kind of percentage. So facility fee, ordering fee, service fee would be your three typical fees. 
And since the building is really at the heart of this, why would there be a facility fee in addition? Well, I think the that's you know just another way the venues have looked to say, how can I get some revenue per ticket? And we could we're going to come later to whether this is just or not. But I'm so now we'll just talk the tech the technical part. But I, I think it's a revenue stream that the venues put in place years ago to gather revenue per ticket. And that is determined in advance. And is that a percentage number? No, that's the venue add-on. That would be what the venue would charge. And that would be across all events, sports, concerts, rodeo? Generally, yes. You know, again, there's always going to be someone going to tweet exceptions to the rules to all of this. But yes, in generality, generally, you would have a facility fee on, on all your events if you were charging facility fees. Okay. Using this $10, Ticketmaster gets $2. Doesn't the promoter also share in the fees? No. Now, you know, this is like pulling one block of Jingo, right? Where does one, where does, where does one get paid? Typically, the venue is paying the promoter. So you can, in theory, say, did he pay the venue? Did he pay the promoter out of his $8 or did he pay it out of his facility fee or did he pay it out of his parking fee? Um, but generally, a venue has to incentivize the promoter um, to bring shows. So there would be a promoter fee uh, at some sometimes that the venue would pay. That would come out of some version of their, of their fees or their revenue line. But, okay. we, don't, but we don't see it. And, 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 you know, when you're doing a settlement at the end, end of the night, the promoter doesn't have a cut of the fees. That's that goes to the venue direct. And then whatever rent and venue deal you have with the venue is separate. Okay. The, but the rent in the, there's rent. Right. But you're also saying there's another line item where essentially the building is paying you to have your concert in that building. They're called rebates. You've probably heard of them over time. You know, the way, the way the venue would work is if you have a, a big arena and probably three arenas maybe in town, it's competitive. So you would come to me, you'd come to AEG, you would come to any promoter and you would try to incentivize them and say, listen, if you could bring 10 shows a year, we'll pay you $5 a ticket. If you could bring 20 shows and 30 shows. So they're going to try to provide an incentive or rebate to bring scale and more shows to their venue if, if you can, uh, as an, as an added incentive. Okay, so let's just use the concert example. Ticketmaster, mm -hmm. revenue stream other than the percentage, other than the couple of dollars on the venue fee. Are there any other income streams for Ticketmaster? No, that's the, 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 the complete business model, is a percentage of the fees. Okay. Needless to say, what you are saying, these, these are costs that are going to be built and the costs are never going to go away. Just for, so people understand, even though you and me have discussed this, the position of Ticketmaster Live Nation is you're all for an all in ticket price. Yeah. I would say that if you were a, you know, not, whether you're a small club owner or Live Nation, you have a venue or, or these arenas that are spending a billion dollars uh, on their venues. The, the reality is the artist has done a great job over the last 10 years of taking more of the door, as you know. So there's not any dollars left on the gross ticket. The ticket goes to the artist. Um, so as that kind of has expanded in order to pay for the venue, to pay for the staff, to pay for your costs, 
the service fees have become the revenue line. But you're right. If you, you couldn't take the service fee away and then say to the venue, let's put the show on, the venue would say, well, who's paying all the costs? I, I got to get paid. So they could crank up the rent and say to the artist, hey, now the rent's going to be a lot more money. Um, and then the, then the artist is going to say, okay, then I'll to charge higher ticket prices. So you would net in the same result. Is there is, I think, I think Garstead at best on stage, there's one pizza. To get the show done, it isn't $48, it's 76 So the quicker we decide that it's a $76 experience, the better we'll be as an industry than, than, than what we're doing today. And, you know, I use the example of Amazon. When I buy that hammer at Amazon, I think it's a great deal. Um, now, if I, if they said to me, the hammer's $5, but the Amazon service fee is four, I would think that's horrible. But, you know, Amazon, Apple charge 30 to 50% distribution fees. So call this fees the distribution fee, the margin. This, the, the challenge in our industry is we have, we have kept the margin, the distribution cost, if you want to call it, outside of the price. Generally, in industries, when you buy something at Walmart or Target, it's all built in. The, the Nordstrom's gets paid, the, 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 the Calvin Klein gets paid, the distribution costs are paid, and it's $99 to buy the jeans. Our business, for many reasons, has stayed outside. So yes, we are, we as an industry think the, we don't think they're junk fees. We don't think they're service fees that are just beautiful add-ons to make a ton of money. Um, we're a very low margin company. So we, we, we certainly are, our numbers are public and financial show you that we're not, uh, we're not making a ton of money on service fees. Um, other than the, uh, what you need to pay for staff costs structure and then have a return on your capital. Okay, just to get this nailed down, your position is you would go to an all-in ticket price. You're pro that position. Yes, we're we're happy. Pearl Jam announced it today on their tour. We're we're talking to others. We would we would tomorrow go all-in pricing. Um, we need we would love the industry to do it. I mean, New York went to all-in pricing. We're the only person doing all-in pricing right now. No one's monitoring it. If you go go to New York right now and try to buy a ticket at StubHub or SeatGeek, no one's no one's following the all-in pricing mandate law that's been put in place there. Um, because we know if you one guy says it's seventy six dollars and one person said it's forty two, but really seventy six checkout, you're going to win on Google every day of the week on the forty two dollar ticket. So to be could be a level playing field for everybody. You would want everyone to have to show the right price up front. So yes, we think that we think showing the fan the real price to go to the show up front is better for everybody. Okay. What is impeding this process? Why can't it happen? Well, I think, you know, I think his StubHub tried it a few years ago, five years ago, six years ago. You know, and they ended up pulling out of it and inciting that their business went down 15, 20%. I think that scared most people. You looked at that and went, geez, if I'm going to be the only solo player moving, um, that's a big hit. So uh, I think the date we all have probably been scared of, do I want to absorb any of the, of the leakage um, in that mission? Because you're going to do it on your own. The artists aren't going to give you a break. Then no one's going to give you a break. The, the venue's not going to say, oh, it's too bad. We'll, we'll help you out here. If you're going to go, you're going to go. I think we've been scared to date. And then obviously COVID came. We all just had to get ourselves back together and back on the on the horse. 
Um, so I think to date it's been the fear of the unknown. Will it hurt your sales? Will the agent artists ask for more money because they now say it's all one? Is it better to keep it separate? I think the sports teams have always done it separate for different reasons too. Um, so I think to date there's been a, um, a fear of the unknown. Um, if you went all in, I, I think at this point though, we have to start acting more like the leader and, and standing stronger and taking some of the short-term pain for the longer-term win. Well, forgetting the resale market, which is where StubHub's experience was and still is, you have all these acts using round numbers once again, saying, I said the price was $50, but the checkout price was $80, and that's terrible. So to what degree do the artists not want all-in ticket pricing? I think it's I think it's split. I mean, as you know, there's no one artist. There's, you know, some want the money and and some want $20 tickets. And there's a spectrum, right? There's no, there's no, I wish I always joke. I wish I saw Adam Silver yesterday. I wish I had a, I wish I was the commissioner and can mandate a few, a few, few things here and there. But we're dealing with 1,500 different managers and artists a year. Um, and they all have different agendas and different parts of their life cycle. And, and, um, so you're right. There are going to be some artists that say, no, screw you. I'm not going to say it's an $80 ticket. It's 50. Um, some artists like Pearl Jam are going to say, I get it. Let's, let's, let's make it fair and, and, and do what's right. Um, so you're right. It hasn't been something to date. You know, this is an industry we talk about is live. It's very, very unor unorganized. As you know, the recorded side is a bit more organized. They've got, you know, they got lobbyists. They've got kind of organizations, the Grammys, the RRA. There's really no, there's no organization in live. We always joke the only actual organization is the Ticket Broker Association, who are really good lobbyists, but there is not even a lobbyist group for us as, a, as an industry. So we don't do well as an industry making smart moves holistically. You're right. So um, I think I think we're going to have to just move forward, live with some short-term pain of some artists or others. Um, but I think it's right for the fan and the experience overall. Now, Bob, I would say, I don't want to, you know, let's go to the second part. I don't want to say that there aren't times when the service fee is too high and that doesn't have to be addressed too. This isn't just jam all the service fees in, put it in one price so we can hide it. There are, as, as you saw with the cure, I think we do have to look at some of our businesses on the lower end ticket prices, um, the clubs, theater. I do think as an industry, we probably do have to absorb a bit better and think a little smarter at what is the add-on fee. Um, because I think, I think although it's justified, I don't think it's justified probably at every ticket price point. So we probably as an industry need to be smarter there. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast, How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. 
And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Tuesday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Okay, but let's be very specific since you brought it up. What exactly happened with the cure? Because $10 were given back, which right. is a first. Right. You know, it was, again, when you, you know, the system isn't really built for artists like Robert and the cure, right? We're, we're usually kind of running fast, put the ticket on sale. And, um, and we kind of were proud of the Ticketmaster side. We did a ton of work with Robert, making sure it was a non-transferable. Uh, that it would be then face value to exchange. And um, we kind of got verified and doing all we could to put all the roadblocks to help him deliver his ticket price to the fan. Um, but he's so active on Twitter, as you know, there was a screenshot of a venue, which wasn't even a Live Nation venue. It was an amphitheater that we don't own um, that showed a, a the ticket fee, service fee of the 20 on the 20. Um which it doesn't matter whether we justify that the service fee is a good idea or not. We, we, we have an industry where we got to build some credibility back. Um, so Robert reached out to me. We talked about it. Uh, I couldn't defend that in any version of life, we were going to add a $20 service fee to a $20 ticket. Um, so I made the decision that we would go in, spend some money and help uh, on this case, give back the $10 and get it to a reasonable place for the, for those fans. Um, okay, let's be very specific. Where did the $10 come from? Because using the earlier paradigm on the fees, the venue takes most of the money. Right. We went to the venues and said, we're going to reduce it by 10 and we will eat the costs if you don't want to join us. We'll, on a, as a one-time hit, we'll take the cost to, 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 to make this right. And I'd say half the venue said, listen, we'll help you out. And the other, other half said, good luck, eat it. Um, so it was a fast, move fast decision. And we thought it was worth the, the million dollars or so to say, let's, let's, let's make the right message with an artist that does care to this level. But if you leave all emotions out, is it reasonable to expect to see the cure for $20 in an arena, which only holds 15 to 20,000 people? No, I think you're, I think the, you know, I, I think the pricing of concerts in general, 
I don't think we should. I think there's this fine line between, yes, we want it accessible, but I think it's a great art. And uh, I think there's a price to it. And, and I don't think we should fool ourselves. The fans will not pay, especially the Cure Age fans that will not pay for the great show. Um, but as I said, the, my job isn't to debate whether the artist wants to take all the money or give or, 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 or Zach or Cure want to charge too little. Um, I'm just trying. My job is just to deliver that platform for them. In this case, I think um, I think we were we, we 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 thought we'd be better off to respond and address it um, than leave it leave it as is. Okay. Now, Live Nation owns clubs and smaller venues. Based on what you just said, you believe in your owned venues that. You should address the fees because in some cases you think they're inappropriate and too high. Yeah, listen, I think is a I think we are if you look at our fee structure, we're no different than AEG or independence anywhere else. Sports, concerts, 930 club, AEG, we're all in the same ballparks. We're all charging facility fees, service fees. We all have the same economic challenge of running a venue, paying staff. Um, and as you know, as you, you read about inflation, staff costs up, insurance costs. So we're all in the same predicament. Um, but I do think as the leader, we probably have to make, uh, uh, we have to start acting and move, moving a little bit more on the younger developing artist club and low ticket price. So yes, I do look at my $20 amphitheater tickets or a $20 ticket in general. And I don't care if it's rational right now that we got to pay staff and we have costs and the service fee should be what it should be to a fan right now. We got to build some trust back. So I think we got to go all in pricing, but I do think uh, at live nation, we'll look at the lower end ticket prices in the theater and clubs and say, can we also scale them back and make sure we're, we're, we're a defendable fee um, on a service on a ticket price. Okay. Right now we might go. have to find other ways, Bob, to get revenue. To supplement that, but I think it's been too easy to add a dollar to the service fee, and I think I think at a certain point a fan says, "Listen, I get it. I, I even get a twenty percent. We've done the research. I understand the service fee pays staff, and I understand it. One, don't surprise me at the end. Please tell me up front. Two, I, if it's more than twenty percent, I don't understand it. Where's it going? Doesn't seem fair. So I think we are looking at uh, we got to do a better job of." saying where it's going and how it's broken out, that would be a start. Um, but if we go all in pricing, I do think we still also have to look at the bottom end and the lower end and make it more accessible. Okay. As I say, a lot of people listening to this are emotionally invested, but don't know all of the process. So let's start with the process of how Live Nation gets a date or a tour and how the money is established both to pay the act and what the ticket prices will be. So a, an artist uh, has an agent and whether they are selling a local date to an arena or a club show in Philadelphia, or maybe the agent is trying to sell 20 or 30 dates together as a tour, that agent's going to call the promoters, whether it's Live Nation, it's going to be AEG, it's going to be the local promoter, Seth, another planet, uh, is always a, a local promoter. So the agent's going to call three promoters and say, Band X wants to play October 1 in Chicago. Um, make us an offer. 
Um, and they might, you know, they might say, here's the ticket price or, or not at the beginning. It'll depend on the artist. Um, but we want to play an arena or a theater on October 1 in San Francisco. Um, make us an offer. We'll come in. We'll come. We'll run the math. Look at the arena. 13,000 seats. What did they do last time? 69, 39, 110. Look at their scaling. They sold out, didn't sell out. Put that math together and say, you know, we think we think there's a this business that is going to sell 80% of the tickets. We think it's a $400,000 guarantee. And we'll send back that guarantee and say $400,000 against a 30, 50, and $110 scaling. Um, agent will take all three of those, generally come back to all three of us and say, we want 450, highest bid is 450. Um, and um, now the ticket prices gets rescaled based on the guarantee. So now your ticket price will go to 120 and 79 and 69. So you can look to scale and gross that number at the door. So in your original bid, your original offer, you do put in ticket price points. It, it, as I said, it's, it's, it's both ways. Sometimes the artist is clear on what the agent will say, you know, here's what we, here's the maximum he'll charge. Here's the ticket prices he'll charge. It's usually only the top end they worry about. So they'll probably say, listen, historically, he's never gone above, above 120 for a P1. So come back with the scale. And there's some version of a, of a top end established by the artist. Um, so we'll come back with that scaling in it. Typically that scaling will spit out a number less than they want. And we'll all probably sharpen our pencils, the eight promoters and come back and say, listen, if you go to 140, we can pay you 450 a night. And that tends to be how it gets defined. So the guarantee drives the ticket scaling. It's just math. It's just bad. You're just dividing 13,000 seats by the guarantee and then debating how many are in each, in each level. Well, let's be very clear. At the end of the day, the act through his agent establishes the price of the ticket. Yes. What, why the cure decided he would have a low price, right? He would have, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have put an offer in with those low prices. That wouldn't have been historically what you do. That would have came back and said, I want to charge $20 and I'm, and I'll live with the lower gross and a lower walkout or other artists will say, agents will say, I want, I want a million dollar guarantee. Come back with the math. Okay. So let's just assume based on your example, you're paying the act $400,000. Mm-hmm. Now, just for uh, the newbies, there is a potential back end, an additional payment. Explain that. Again, I'm going to use generalities, but typically you're going to pay an artist a, a, a guarantee versus a 90-10. Maybe it's a 95-5. So if you uh, sell out whatever tickets you sell that night, you're going to get your total gross. And if you grossed $510,000 after uh, at the top end, you're going to take expenses out, rent, local local ushers, local security, local venue costs. And then you might end up at $400,000 net after venue costs. If you guaranteed them $450, you write the check for $450 regardless. If after costs it's $500, they're going to get 90% of that $500 versus their guarantee of $450. So they're going to get $475 and you'll make your, your 
So at minimum, they got a floor. Their job is then to um, push us to keep expenses down, sell as many tickets as we can, and try to get that artist into what they call percentages. Okay. Overall, what is Live Nation's profit percentage? And where do you actually make the money since the acts get most of the uh, ticket revenue? Well, at, listen, at the core, this is a scale business, right? You know, I had to build this over the last 15 years because you don't get rich on any one show. It's the service global business. We're going to do 40,000 shows in, uh, in 100 uh, cities in 40 countries. So I remember an analyst way back said it's the river of nickels. Right. So you have to build a business that has a lot of ongoing nickels of revenue streams around that flywheel called the show. So, you know, if you kind of look at our model, we're going to do 40,000 shows. We'll spend about $10 billion on guarantees or those walkouts at midnight. We'll make a bit, we'll make a, a, a small percentage on that so called door. Um, where we're going to make our money now is okay, we have a hundred million people walked into the door. So we're going to one, we have 130, 150 of our own venues, amphitheaters, clubs, theaters, uh, 300 festivals. So in those places, we'll be the venue. We're going to make the food and beverage, the, the parking, the service fees, um, and the sponsorship. So you're kind of vertical. On the non-Live Nation shows, we're going to make money on, on those rebates. As we talk about, bring our content to the arena, bring them 40, 50 shows and get paid a, uh, a rebate. And then third is we're going to uh, our global sponsorship business, just in general, delivering global sponsorships to our uh, shows, our festivals, our venues, our access, our, um, image programs, pre-sale programs, all of those ways that we can deliver sponsorships to, um, to, to big brands. And then Ticketmaster service fees, those 20% that they're going to make on that side. So those are the main buckets that you're going to put together that deliver your profitability above your, uh, on your 40,000 shows. And at the end of the day, what's the margin? We're at, you know, we're on a combined basis. We're a 10, 11% margin business. Concert business is a low margin too. 2% margin could be four. Um, sponsorship is a high margin business. Ticketing is a 35% business, but you're netting out to a 10, 11% margin business overall. Which- and compared to other uh, companies, Apple strives for 30% margin. Yeah. If you're a tech company, you're going to be in your 30, 40 plus percent margins. You would. You wouldn't find a monopoly in history that had a 10, 11% margin. If you want to kind of use that analogy, typically um, mar- monopoly means you've exerted, you have enough power and pro- pricing power, et cetera. You probably have a very high margin return. Um, so you're right. It is, a, it, is, it is a low margin business at the core. Um, you have to have global scale like we built to ultimately deliver a consistent global good business. But it's a, it's a hand-to-hand combat. How much? Of the income is from sponsorship. You know what? It's ballpark. We're about 40% sponsorship. It's a big business for us. Um, our festivals. Okay. okay. Let's talk superstar acts. 
And I'm going to speak English here. There are a number of superstar acts, some of them who used to be with AEG, but Live Nation pays more. And sometimes the act goes with Live, most of the time the act goes with Live Nation. How can Live Nation pay more? Yeah, I don't I, I don't go the pay more route. I, I wouldn't say that's fair, fair uh, all the time. Uh, as I went to that earlier bidding process, wh- when there's a big global tour that AEG and Live Nation are bidding on, um, I can't remember the last latest one. It, it, we're both we're both neck to neck. I mean, there's never a version that AEG they're calling me saying, "Oh God, you you so overpaid. It's yours." I mean, God, we're just we're just too good as a company as is AEG. Nor are they overpaying. I mean, you're literally going to win by a dollar either way. You're, you you at that point though you're you're selling your global business you're selling your relationships you're selling your marketing you're you know so you're 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 selling a bundle but I wouldn't tell you uh, that we there would be no version that we're waking up and stealing a tour from them or winning a tour from them because we dramatically overpaid it's an inside baseball negotiating well, wait, wait 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 there's a lot of dollars involved here and right. I certainly know of specific cases at the end of the day. Live Nation paid more than AEG was willing to pay, and the act went with Live Nation. Let right. me let me let let me uh, go to a different spot, and we'll address this but, in a different. Bob, just to, I, I joke with my team, right? When we lose a tour, AEG overpaid. When we win a tour, we're geniuses, right? So I I, I live I, I deal with this every day. When 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 we lose to AEG, my promoter will come to me and go, "Oh my God, they so overpaid." They didn't, uh, you know. That's 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 what competitively wise. That's typically what you do. Is the only way you must have lost is the other guy must have dramatically overpaid. Most of us are every negotiation with that agent. It's inside baseball. That agent is calling you saying AEG's at forty one million and you're at thirty nine eight. He's calling AEG saying they're at thirty nine. Like it's not like we're at fifty and they're at forty two. There's there's no version of that. We're we're all it's a, we're none of us. And nor is AEG when they beat me. It's not because they dramatically overpaid. Um, you know they 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 won the Luke Combs tour. Um, he's got a good relationship with Cappy and won that in the U.S. and and um and and and, and you know there's kind of a combination of relationship meets money meets uh, you know their package. But um, so I just say that because I, I I definitely don't believe that when we win it's because we overpaid. We typically win because we have a global business different than theirs. We have been able to generally make artists more money overall, which really matters. Not what you pay them. What the artist cares about is what's the walkout in the end. Um, and we were the author of platinum and and dynamic pricing and 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 and, and VIP. So I do believe we've been able to help deliver for the artists, but wouldn't say we overpay to win. I think we both win on price um but but there's always a package around it okay let's talk specifically about ticketmaster ticketmaster is also a secondary platform okay yes meaning the ticket's already been sold it can be resold on ticketmaster let's start first the fact that the ticket cannot be resold at less than in the original price 
Is that a Ticketmaster policy or is that an ACT policy? That's Ticketmaster. We, we, so when I took over Ticketmaster, um, our biggest challenge at Ticketmaster, and the reason it was declining five years in a row, was StubHub was kicking its ass. At 10 o'clock, when you went to Ticketmaster to buy that tour of the day 10 years ago, we said no tickets available, literally. And I followed it one day, and for the next six months, like 86 million people came to the page, which we basically said go to StubHub. So our sports clients, then also our team, team owners, NBA, NHL, had adopted exchanges and secondary fully at that point. So number one reality was we needed to be able to say, we need to open our platform and let secondary dots live. We can't keep telling customers we have no tickets at 10 a.m. Well, secondary is alive and well down the street. Um, but one of the realities was, what were we going to do that we believe for the team and the artist um, would still be something that, th that is right for their business? So the two things we don't do which hurt us overall market share is we don't do spec selling and we don't underprice face. That probably means at any given time, we have 50% less inventory than SeatGeek and StubHub. Because as you see, a lot of this game that go on now is spec selling where they don't have the seats. They don't really have the ticket. They're masterful. Um, they're very good marketers. They'll put three seats together at $800 and two seats at 2000, but they don't have any of those. But if you buy the 800 because it seems cheaper than the two, they'll email you and they'll find seats, a row difference, and you'll buy them anyways. So um, we don't do spec selling. And we decided that we would always say we don't ever think content should be underpriced um, from whatever the artist or team set it at. So that's been our philosophy. And we've stayed true to that so far. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast, How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. 
Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Tuesday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Okay, what is the payment to Ticketmaster when a ticket is resold on its platform? It's the same. So the secondary has to be approved by the venue because the venue, again, when they select a ticketing company, they mandate what the secondary is or isn't. Um, So it's the same split, basically. The secondary, uh, I can't turn on the secondary in that venue without the venue approving it. Um, And the third thing that we do that uh, scalpers, I guess, don't do is we we get approval from the artist. So again, a lot of times if the artist says, I don't want TM to turn on secondary, we don't. Um, even though SeatGeek and others will will uh, you know will will fill up. Taylor Swift, for example, we didn't turn on TM Plus and SeatGeek and others made a fortune. Um, but but the ultimate is the reality is the venue controls the ticket secondary economics and turning on and turning off for their teams. Uh, so on a concert, if the, on a secondary, is the split similar to the primary? Similar. Yeah, they're all the similar. similar. And then to what degree does the fee change based on the price of the ticket? I would assume it has the same up scales up as the ticket goes up. 20, 30, 25, 30, whatever the actual scale Okay, is. so needless to say, on the secondary, the venue is making the majority of the money as opposed to Ticketmaster. But just the fees, we, not the, yes. just for the unknown there, for the people right. out there. It's not the, the face is the third party person making the real money. The fee right. is then just split between the venue and TM. Okay, there are many events that Ticketmaster is the ticketing company, but Live Nation is not the promoter. Yes. Correct? Yes. So if I am a promoter and Ticketmaster is the platform I'm using for the gig, I would say, hey, if there's secondary market, why can't I share in that income? Because Live Nation is sharing in the upscale upsell on Live Nation shows, but they're also making money on my show. Yeah, but you as the promoter can say, I don't want to turn it on. So typically, AEG won't turn it on. They'll say, it's my show, and we don't want to turn on secondary in that venue. So the promoter has the right with his show in that venue to determine if, if, a, if TM does get turned on for the platform. And and about and the promoter, you know, remember the promoter is always going to go to the venue and say, in general, I want to get paid my rebate. So you know, his motive is always going to be whether, however much money the venue makes, your job as the promoter is to figure out how to pr- increase your rebates. So theoretically, if you know it's an in-demand show, the promoter would be aware of this and say. I want a payment that, in essence, would be percentage of your fees that you're making on the resale. Yeah, I just want to make clear we don't get that misstated. The, the, the promoter in general isn't 
specifically saying, give me a, the artist or the promoter aren't, aren't specifically saying, give me uh, some of that $8 or $2. That conversation doesn't happen. The, ven the venue has already got a relationship with the venue or the promoter, and the promoter is getting his five, eight, nine dollar rebate as a business overall. Um, so if, if you were the venue and you want to turn it on, the promoter isn't going to worry about that one revenue stream that night. You've, you're playing for the full year. And there are some days where the show loses money and the venues are great partners and help you out on the rent or help you out on, you know, it's the, it's the bad shows you want to save the good days for the, pro, for the venue, not the, the days they can make some money. Okay, let's talk about ticket prices. You know, there have been some amplified examples like Springsteen. Okay, you mentioned Pearl Jam. It's a non-transferable ticket. They're establishing the price. That's what it costs. But there are other acts. Let's use Springsteen, who went over $100. And people say, I am a diehard fan. I am entitled to be in the building. I'm entitled to get a good seat at a low price. These are the same. No, these are boomers mostly going to a Springsteen show. If they go to dinner, it's a hundred dollars a person. Yeah. But for somehow to go to see Springsteen, a hundred dollars is too much. What's yeah. the reality of pricing? And is it different for younger acts? And is it really we should just charge what the ticket is worth. It's a, it's a really interesting, complex problem, right? You have this fandom, as you know, that fan is so emotionally connected to that artist. They've listened a thousand times um, and they really believe they have rights. It's very different than sports, which is a badge of honor to say this courtside's cost $16,000. Um, you know, I was talking. I was talking to LeBron James the night he broke the uh, the record and ticket and uh, points. And I said, you know, LeBron tonight to sit courtside, Laker games, ten twenty thousand dollars, but they're mad. Beyonce's charging eight hundred for one tour every five years. But it's a uh, you know the Super Bowl, the sports business is kind of embraced. It's expensive, and for some reason, that diehard fan doesn't get on Twitter and say that team owners. An asshole because I can't see the the Lakers for sixty six dollars. Um, so you're right. The fan is very emotionally connected. They've got great outlets now on Twitter and other ways. They really believe that they have the right to see that artist. But the reality, as you said, Bob, then in this scarcity world uh, of Birkin bags and LVMH that you wrote about last week, um, the live experience is a absolutely special moment in time. That front row is a Birkin bag and more. It's a it's an exceptional product. Um, and you're right. I do think the quicker the artists figure out that we got to charge closer to market for some of the seats. You know, Springsteen was a great example. It was only 1% of the seats were over $1,000. All we did was transfer last tour. The tickets went right to the scalper and resold to the fan for $2,000. So this time we just took those same tickets and said, Bruce, you should actually get the money, but let's make sure we keep the rest of the house cheap. But the stories don't get that headline. Um, you know, 98% of my shows don't sell out. Most shows are very affordable, but you're going to have some Birkin bags 
in the Beyonce's and the Drake's and the Bad Bunnies and these these artists. And the front rows are scarce business commodities. Um, and I do think that while the secondary exists, free, free and free and clear in America, um, that you do have to start saying then if the fan is buying it from StubHub, they are fans. Why wouldn't the artist participate in that art um, and have more of it? Um, so I do think I, I think that they have to slowly start charging closer to market at the front end. Now, you know, you know, we launched Fair Ticket Act, and I'm sure you'll mention all that. You know, I do believe that the the, the reality is the digital ticket is a great tool that could help us out in this mess. I mean, the mess we have right now is that creates the creates the Twitter storms. Is that fan comes at 10 a.m. and they're pissed off because at 10:01 it's sold out, and there's 10 pages of scalpers selling tickets for 300 times face, and I get the DMs and the hate mail and the and the death threats that say you you know you asshole you must have given all those tickets to the scalper at 10 o'clock. It's not fair. That's the drama that we created, right? And we do our best with verified fan and speed bumps and. It's, but it's a, it's an arms race um, because there's five billion dollars in secondary available to make at a very 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 high margin business. So while we're letting that run wild, then you either have to control it or you have to price to it. But I think if we just let it run wild like we are today, and then it's silly of us then not to let the artists participate in some of that uh, and price it better. Or we got to control it, and we could with digital ticketing. We could we could tomorrow just say there's a cap on it or there's some rules around it. A lot of countries in the world have figured out this is probably not a great idea to run wild and, and have fans have to pay uh, these prices. Um, so I do think that it should be some control put in place. So we could put some uh, some limits on it. I don't have a lot of faith that we can get much done in the government probably right now or, or monitored or actually uh, um, executed properly. So I think you do then have to say, probably have to price closer to market for some of those front rows and some of those seats. Um, so the artist who's already paying that anyways, they're paying it today. It's not, it's not being paid. It's just not being monetized by the artist. Would you say people complaining about excessive ticket prices is more of a boomer Gen X phenomenon as opposed to younger acts? Yeah, it's just, it's an interesting, uh, you know, to see that which ones do flare up. Is you're right. I uh, I sat at the Bad Bunny Stadium show here in L.A. Incredible show, incredible performer. Um, was the third highest grossing stadium in history. Um, he broke most records. Um, and I said, uh, I said to his manager, "Incredible! The fans are they're dancing, they're having their blast. They dressed up." This is a party tonight, and the tickets were, you know, priced well, but there was no social about it. But, but definitely the, the Springsteen fans seemed to get really upset, even though he was probably much older and richer. So it, it did seem a bit ironic that week. Um, the other thing that people don't realize is the very expensive tickets are not only going to the rich, the hardcore fan will pay that price, even if they're, I hear from them all the time, even it's on StubHub, and they're very happy about being that close. I, I so agree with you, Bob. I said this to an artist last week who went on this low ticket price, and I just said, like, you, you just, you know, you're missing it. I came from no money. 
And I remember going to my Robert Plant tour in, in, uh, in, in Toronto from Thunder Bay on a bus. And yes, I saved my money and I worked hard and it was all my money for that month or whatever it was, but that was a great experience. And, you know, I get these emails now from someone that says, oh my God, I had to work two jobs to get to the Bad Bunny show. And yeah, you know, most, most people look at concerts as a really special moment in their Kodak life. It's, it's magic moment, maybe twice a year. Um, way cheaper than Disneyland or the Super Bowl or the NFL or the NBA playoffs or or an expensive night out. So it's really cheap overall, considering. Um, and you're right. This is not that the uh, that the this this the rich people. This is a great great product that people will buy as they're going to buy the Gucci bag. They're going to buy moments in life where they will step up um, and and spoil themselves the big screen TV and or whatever it may be, but. You're right. This is a business where we can charge a bit more. I'm not saying excessively, but it's it's a great two hour performance of a lifetime uh, that happens once every three four years in that market. Um, you don't have to underprice yourself. Low low to middle uh, income will 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 make their way to that arena for that special night. About twenty years ago, the concept of platinum started. You got a seat very close to the stage. You might get to eat, meet a member of the band. You might get to hear a sound check, whatever. We learned that the extras weren't what were selling the tickets. People just wanted the good seats. But when it came to Springsteen, the term platinum was used for tickets that were not right up front. And in addition, those were dynamically priced. How did we get there? Yeah, you're right. The platinum, the VIP tickets, um, you know, different ways where there were higher ticket prices outside of the P1s. And you're right, they they all got bought regardless of whether it was a cocktail shrimp and a laminate. It was just the good seats uh, and they bought them. Um, so recently, over the last five years, a lot of those sound checks and meet and greets and VIPs Especially through COVID, uh, before and after, started to wean out. They were the cost to execute. They weren't that special anymore, um, and the business converted to more of a platinum ticket. Let's just charge for those good seats. Let's put some seats into a, a, an allocation where they're more than the pre ones, and we can price them better. Um, started five, eight years ago. Um, bands started to embrace this idea that there was an idea, and again. Artists are always just looking at the other side of the equation on, as everyday secondary got more sunlight and went from the streets to the internet and you could start seeing what they were paying. The, the, obviously, the artist, the manager, the agent, promoter, we all looked at that and went, geez, look what's happening over here. How are we going to get the artist to tar- charge closer to, to market on some of the good seats? So that, that's when Platinum launched. It's, it's done really well. Um, dynamic started same thing eight nine years ago when you started to, we started with price master where you started to say there's different you know this scaling shouldn't be the same most dynamic products hotels airlines aren't charging the same on the last day and the first day the middle seat so we started price master years ago to say to the artist you know a friday night in new york should not be the same ticket price as a tuesday in cleveland the aisle seats worth more than the middle you can monetize the house smarter you can sell it out 
said charge less for the back seats, more for the front. Instead of this three scalings, which was always kind of the 30 years of, of doing three scalings in same markets all the time. So dynamic price master had been in been been used for the last probably eight years. Um, and I think coming out of COVID, dynamic platinum adding more out increasing the allocation, the drug got a little sexy. And more and more artists started putting and, and promoters, we started putting more in the platinum allocation to increase the gross. Um, and I think we're, uh, you know, I think we're learning now. We we got to watch if, if the definition of platinum is going to be platinum. We better make sure it's a platinum seat. And if we're going to dynamic, we better put better rules in place on when we change ticket pricing. Not 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 in the price sale, not or not in the on sale. Um, so we're. I think we're. I think we're as an industry are learning how to price dynamic tickets to demand. And um, that's kind of what's been going on to date. I think we're slowly putting better rules in place to figure out how to do it smartly. Let's use Springsteen as an example. Demand was heavy and tickets in the platinum area spiked to multiple four figures. Anybody experienced in the business knows no one's buying those tickets at those excessive prices. No, They're waiting for them to come down. What happened there? Was that purely a program, an algorithm? Was that something Springsteen was aware of in in advance? How uh, expensive the ticket should be? Is this something that needs to be done by hand? Was it done by hand? Yeah. Again, artists are you know as you as you and I talked about. There's no there's nothing done in pricing that a agent, artist, manager aren't agreeing to. There's no. No promoter gets to just run the clock. Um, it's all part of your plan. Listen, I think I think we're as an industry, we're still learning what it means to dynamic and platinum. And you're right. There are a few tours where you put a few tickets in this twenty five hundred up to five thousand dollar limit and said, let's put some platinums at that price. Um, reality is, you know, ten of those sell. It's not a smart strategy because the headline's so bad, but the volume's not there. Uh, I think that's a, a lesson quickly learned. I don't think you're seeing a lot of platinum now that's probably more than a thousand seems to be the quick learning curve. Um, I know we did it in uh, in Vegas and others. So I, I think the imperfect science of how do we ma- manage the secondary business that's going to boom instantly at 10 o'clock? Um, how do we get some of that captured on this side of the ledger? Um, the pricing wasn't isn't perfect right now, and it's 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 it is manually done, not complete algorithms. You're looking at algorithms to figure out the pricing of secondary and demand to come up with a range. Um, but I think we're quickly learning on platinum. Any major tour, whether you can really sell a thirty three hundred dollar ticket or a twenty seven, isn't worth the small upside. You probably should just put some good platinum somewhere in the five to thousand dollar range. Seems to be the sweet spot right now where you can sell a, a decent scale of those in the good seats and the good sections and be happy with that uplift that didn't go to the secondary. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. 
It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. (sighs) Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Tuesday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Okay, conventional wisdom is that Ticketmaster is a monopoly. You hear this from elected officials. You hear this from ticket buyers. What is your response to that? You know, it's a it's it's a business that when we merged 10 years ago, um, the DOJ in there, I think Irvin and I spent 18 months going through that process of, uh, of the DOJ um, digging in deep. So that's, and when the DOJ digs in deep, I mean, there's 10,000 emails later. So they did that when we merged um, and let the, let, the, let the acquisition go through. They let the merger happen. So that, that's step one that says they didn't believe it was a monopoly. You know, couldn't find facts that said Ticketmaster was a monopoly or they wouldn't have proved it. Um, we agreed to a, um, a dissent decree for 10 years that said we will absolutely then, if there is concern, we won't leverage, um, or we won't um, uh, punish any venue that doesn't use Ticketmaster. And that went on for 10 years. Um, I think it was the ninth year DOJ opened up the case again, four or five years ago now, said we have a couple cases where we think you um, threaten a threaten venue. And, and threaten the venue means, you know, a random promoter in, out of my 900 said you should renew with Ticketmaster, you're not going to get a show. I mean, this isn't like, you know, out of thousands and thousands of shows and te- nine years later, this isn't a as we always said, this isn't an ongoing structural reality. Um, doesn't happen. And by the way, those venues, when you looked at them, they didn't actually get reduced show count. The facts didn't support that. Um, so there was no real actual venue that got punished. Um, we just decided uh, at that point, 
that we would extend the decree for five years, um, as you always do, to make sure you just kind of simplify this case and move on. But they spent a year deposing me and going through it again. That was the three, four years ago. So again, I would say to you, if we were the monopoly, a year after the DOJ probing you, trust me, if there was real structural legal data that said Live, Live Nation, Ticketmaster together, single or, or, or um, a monopoly, they would have sued us, done something, um, gave us a five-year extension and moved on. So, you know, we it's not like we haven't been already investigated deep and haven't seen every email I've ever written and everyone else's and all of our promoters and Ticketmaster. They've been down the deep dive many times. So um, I say that in the sense of, you know, that's kind of a clean bill of health to date. Now, I understand why it's it's easy to jump on the wagon, the Ticketmaster and the service fees and what you and I have been talking about. We haven't done a good job as an industry, and especially on my front as Live Nation Ticketmaster, explaining out loud what happens to fees, how they're set, what happens. It hasn't been a, uh, hasn't been a big motive historically for me to kind of go out loud and say, hey, the venue, my client is taking most of the money or the artist is setting the ticket price. I'm a B2B business. I service the artist and venue. And Ticketmaster's job has been to take that punch in the head for the industry. That's been part of what people do, uh, why they hire you. Um, there's no glory in being the ticketing company, no, who, no matter who you are. Um, uh, SeatGeek, Access, anyone, they all have the same challenges when there's 10 million fans that want a million tickets and then secondary. So. Um, so I understand why the, the flurry of, ener of energy can be spent on it because it looks big and it looks like there's service ticket master fees and challenges, but, um, but we don't think there's any basis to a legal challenge that says in any way we're a monopoly. Our margins prove that our daily battles to win that venue or lose that venue or win that tour, um, are live and well, that's well documented. Um, there's nothing wrong with being big. Nothing wrong with being great. Nothing wrong with offering a great product and being better than the other guy and winning. We don't set ticket prices. We're not harming fans. Artists have all the options in the world. You know that as well as I do. There's only one Aerosmith that has 100 dates available and a 1,000 venues that want those dates and every promoter and partner that wants it. So the, um, the, the business is you know widely misunderstood, as you know, outside of the industry. Um, big as big is an easy target ticketing is an easy target um but on the fundamentals on a monopoly no we're we're, we're far from that um so Let, let's go a little deeper here mm -hmm. uh administrations change and presently under biden the woman who's uh head of the ftc lena khan is very active everything that she has tried to uh get through has not ultimately passed but inside the business it's well known that she is looking at Ticketmaster and live nation questions of monopoly antitrust are they asking you for information do you have a team at live nation who is dealing with this yeah just to be clear though they there tends to be you 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 tend to either deal with the FTC or the DOJ and they kind of split it up if they're going to uh, probe. It's the DOJ that are doing the investigation on us right now, not the FTC. So the so sh that wouldn't be in not that she couldn't, but 
she wouldn't be doing it if they're doing it. So right now we have been working with the DOJ since November, providing them all of the data they want to take a look uh, at our business and see if there's any new data that would support any thesis around our, our ticket monopoly or our dissent decree. So we're working with them. Um, and that's that'll be an ongoing process. And somewhere in the next, somewhere this year, we'll the, the sad part about the DOJ is they get to kind of leak when they're looking at you, but you don't really get a final date when you're going to be done with it. So we'll live that this year and be cooperative with them. But we don't, we think legally, uh, Dan Wall, um, who now works for us full time, has done a great, great article on kind of the, the technical legal part, of the DOJ in the case. So we think we're complying and, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll get through this. What do you say to the people who say, since you have an excess of 50% market share, you're inherently a monopoly? Yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, the market share, you know, I could go down a whole bunch of, you're a lawyer, so I could go down a whole bunch of paths on how big a market, how big is, is, is the competition today versus when we merged. I don't have 50% market share when you and I can debate how to define market share. There's thousands of venues. There's lots of promoters. Um, the, the math will say on promoting side, I don't have 50% in America. Um, and, and when you look at the festivals, the ticketing, the arenas, the theaters, the clubs, um, there's more competition in ticketing today than there was 10 years ago. SeatGeek today announcing going public, StubHub, access didn't exist. I mean, when we merged this company, there was nobody. We had to white label our software to AEG for three years so we could start a competitor called Access. That was the mandate from, from the DOJ. But that was at a time when they didn't think we're, when they didn't think we're monopoly then. There wasn't even close to the competitive nature there is today. So I would say to you, we, we have grown globally really well. In America, our market share since we merged to today has gone down. Um, SeatGeek Access have taken more venues because they didn't exist when we merged. So today, if you're a venue, Bob, you, you're going to have no, you, there's no debate. You're going to be able to say, I got three great competitive options that I can get the best deal I want from Access, SeatGeek, or Ticketmaster. I don't have to pick Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster may be better than the other ones. They might have better technology. They may, they may, they may have a better product, and that's where we tend to win. But you don't have to pick us as the Washington Redskins or Commanders just picked SeatGeek for their stadium. Um, so you know, we think it's a, still a really competitive business. Our margins are the best ultimate dictation of that. Um, if you're if you have margins of where we are, you're you're not exerting or or leveraging any power against your 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 user base. So we think the artists have great options. We think venues have great options. We think we've um, been able to demonstrate that, and we think the market's more competitive today than it was before. Even as big and strong and and great as our business is globally, um, we still think there's competition. Okay, in other territories, ticketing is different. In the UK, there are multiple ticket sellers for venues. Can you explain, A, how that works and how you're involved in that? And B, you have your competitors who I speak with who want that model in the US. So if you could address that. Yeah, the, 
the the US, the UK I'm trying to think you know Germany is not really like that although a bit um but yeah so historically outside of America it was an allocation market if you were the venue you allocated to multiple ticketing companies um the the exclusive venue model was a US bred model um I would say to you though that if you look at where the trend is going internationally generally as the new buildings are being built they're looking to go to a more exclusive model because they're you know think about the difference in international is they didn't have NBA NHL arenas they have soccer stadiums so not a lot of things were built as the new buildings were being built whether it's a soccer um or or a hockey arena they tend to now go you know what if i'm building a billion dollar arena or a football stadium i should go monetize my ticketing rights and i probably could get somebody to pay me more money to have exclusive ticketing rights than three people have the rights so that's where the model grows out so you look now at some of the businesses in the uk the football businesses they tend to go exclusive now seeking had a few we have a few um so i i would say you know i think the venues as they get built and you build a building your job is to figure out where am i going to get paid the most for all of my revenue streams and um i i i think you're starting to see some of those venues say i actually think i can monetize it differently uh, now i'll back up bob i'm not i'm not the you know the the the, the golden child that says that all has to be exclusive i i'm not uh, that's the model i inherited it's been working in this industry for long before my time it's the model we run to date um i'm uh, i'm not telling you that i think the future needs to be exclusive i i could ticketmaster could operate on an allocation model as well as an exclusive model and do really well the irony is the double side of the venue is if you go back to the venue and say great you're not going to be exclusive we don't have to pay as much i'll be happy to sell 60% of your tickets without having to buy exclusivity if that's the model we want to market you know so there's it's a balance right i'm i'm i don't have to be exclusive the cost to exclusive in the industry is expensive now the venues have done a good job uh charging a real real premium for that and maybe at a certain point the business model is better for everybody meaning the ticket master and companies if we don't have exclusive um because the best the best seller still wins in the end okay just to be very very clear for those not in the know in the UK let's just use the example of three ticket resellers or ticket sellers actually a do they pay the venue b do they pull inventory from the same database no you're going to have a you know again if you look what's happening AEG owns the O2 arena so they're going to in theory they favor their ticketing company just like CTS does in Germany so they're going to run the they're going to run their database the central database they're going to give most allocation to their own ticket company and then they're going to give as limited amount of as tickets as they can to us and others to kind of finish off the market but it's not a free for all allocated how do three companies equally access that venue i could give you the opposite there where we're not getting paid or have the same allocation as the venue because they're 
allocating to their own company. But it's off one database, and they would um, the venue would pay a, a piece of the service fee to the ticketing companies. So the ticket companies would get a, a a piece of the service fee for the tickets they sold. But there's no advance from the other companies to the venue. It's starting now. Yes, there are because your job. Because what really happens now is you want to be the you want to get a higher percentage of the allocation. So you're now going to start paying to be in pole position of the good seats and more of them. So that's where it's morphing. The the venue is now figured out. Oh, someone will pay me. You know, you're going to wake up and say, "Here, here, are ticket companies for free. Take all my tickets. Good luck." you're going to start going someone wants the good seats and so will pay me for it so we are now competitively doing that as an industry and festivals tend to be more one one company let's talk about traditional new building arena meaning they have sky boxes etc inside there's always an issue of all the tickets are not on the manifest you referenced this earlier but can you explain for my audience? Yeah, gen- generally a venue in America. I, I'm, you know, we're going to talk arenas and stadiums. Um, you know, their primary business is to sell that sports team, season tickets, suite sponsorship. Um, and as you're selling those eighty games, whatever the sport is, and the sponsorship. Um, you know, your your box and your premium seats are only you know exciting for how many of those 80 games so the best way to to deliver that box season ticket sponsor is to say listen spend this much money you're going to get the season tickets for the hockey team you're also going to get it for the 35 concerts that come to the venue a year you're going to you're going to get first assets those tickets um so that's generally every arena is going to have some level of a of a club box system thousand two three thousand tickets that are um, within that venue system sold to their current client base which is a lot of reasons why people say where did scalpers get tickets that's another big leaky bucket um but but that's so that's why when you sell when you put a t- this inventory on sale it's not the fourteen thousand seats in that venue and then there's club seats and then there's boxes um, it's not everything in that venue is going for sale. Some of it has already been pre-sold or, hel- or held back for customer basis. Let's talk about the secondary market. You referenced that, yes, they do get it from the people who are season ticket holders. To what degree are the bots a problem on the on sale? And to what degree can it be addressed or possibly eradicated? Yeah, the bots are. You know, it's an arms race. It's it's an impossible mission right now, um, because again, as an industry, you really only have Ticketmaster even trying to stop them. There's no one else. You know, Access isn't spending much money on it, and and SeatGeek and StubHub are obviously that's what their business is. Um, so uh, right now, when again, when you have that uh, the, the the famous Taylor Swift moment, uh, but when you have that level of you know, if you looked in the Taylor Swift moment there, you go on the dark web right now, you can buy 
whole bunch of software to try to hack the latest on sale. Um, you know, it's a very organized and unorganized kind of underweb of $5 billion that people are trying to access. So there's bots, there's tons of software on the dark web to how to break the code. What's the password? That's what, what happened on Taylor. Um, so you have a lot of, a lot of, uh, global parties trying to break and allocate that on sale to try to get those tickets and put them on a secondary platform. Um, the bot act has never been enforced, which is our big complaint as much as all, uh, everyone loved tweeting Taylor Swift and their tweet to get a lot of likes. None of them want to address the challenge, right? It's the, the challenge at the end of the day is, you know, I use the example of when you see those videos of someone breaking in the Prada store on Beverly Hills, stealing the purses, you know, people go, Oh, what's going on with the Beverly Hills police department. We got to staff up. They don't blame Prada. Um, well, what happened in Taylor Swift was the Prada story, right? Is they broke, they tried to break the doors down. Um, reality is we stopped them. Now we had to slow the system down, but we kept them out and we, they didn't steal one bag. And we stole, ended up by the end of the day, delivering 2 million tickets to Taylor Swift fans. Um, and then you have the congressman putting their hands up going, oh my God, what's going on? And we're going, well, is, you, you're doing nothing to enforce the bot act. We had a bot attack. We had a cyber attack. We did our best to fight it off ourselves. We're the Prada store. So we're now have to enforce the, pro the bot police or you have to enforce the bot police. So you know, we kind of get in that circle, right? If you're going to let, if you're going to let second run wild, like we are today, then you got to just forget about even blaming anybody for what happens on on sales. It's, it's a free for all, or you have to then decide, are we going to legislate anything? Are we going to try to limit bots? Are we going to try to limit that on sale mess? And right now we haven't. So right now the on sale is going to be a mess on a high profitable show. The bots will end up um, getting seats. Um, and they screw up the system and they try to break the system for the hours. It's all part of that. All their job is just to figure out, give a mess, scare you that they're all sold out fast, right? They try to hold tickets forever. That's the big game they play is get on the map and hold all the dots. So you only see a few dots for sale and you'll buy them or you'll go to StubHub and buy them. Then they release the dots later. And that's why you end up seeing at the end of the day, why is there more tickets available? Because the they got in and held tickets. You got scared. You went to SeatGeek, bought tickets for $2,000 because you thought it was sold. Then you come back to Ticketmaster and go, oh, there's tickets available. What happened? So it's a, it, is a, uh, it is a big challenge. It's a big mission. Um, again, we haven't been that vocal historically. We've, we've, we've stayed on the sidelines and tried to battle it. But now we're, we're being pretty vocal on the FAIR Act. And we do think that you got to start there. And I, I think there's a bill coming out from Neva and others. So I do think it's time we do let do, we do think about legislation around the secondary in some sense as a start. We went to all in ticketing and some legislation on secondary. The experience starts to get real bit real different. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, 
It's got standard third row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Tuesday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Okay. Just going back to the Taylor Swift on sale, the perception was everybody's got a uh, got a computer at this point, and everyone knows if there's an incredible demand, even with Apple products, the system slows down. Are you saying you intentionally slowed the system down? And two, you said you made it so the bots didn't get tickets. Is that really what happened with Taylor Swift? The bots really didn't get tickets? No, they didn't. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, again, some some percentage I'm sure slip in because both can dress up as Taylor fans pretty good too. But generally, on a verified fan percentage wise, is we do a really good job of knowing the difference between a bot and a fan. Um, the what and the, the, the result is you end up knowing instantly on what's on sale on the secondary is if it's successful, right? If there's less inventory on secondary, you absolutely. Um, cut out a lot of the bots so no that was a uh that that was about not letting the bots in the bots didn't get in or the bad guy didn't get the tickets but unfortunately it was a bad consumer experience for the day as the system needed to get uh, needed to operate at a slow level to ultimately get those two million tickets out the single biggest ticket day in history was nine hundred thousand tickets so the mission that day on Ticketmaster, we actually sold 1 million pink ticket that day too. So if you want to talk about the load that that was able to deliver by the end of the day was, was, was a huge, huge deliverable. Although rightly so the fans jumped on and, and were not happy, but, um, but no, we were proud at the end of the day that the tickets didn't get the, the purse didn't get stolen. Um, we were able to limit that and make sure that the tickets got to the ha- to the verified fans' hands in the end. Okay. Go back to Miley Cyrus. She went on tour this about 12, 15 years ago. All the mothers complained, hey, we can't get tickets. The next tour, 
was totally paperless and didn't sell out instantly. If we go back to Taylor Swift, the last time she went on on tour pre-COVID, she did not go clean in every market. So we have all these competing interests that change the perception of the fan as to availability. A, can we say that some acts want to put on a lot of, want to create this demand, which will, will incentivize people to buy tickets? And two, if another superstar came to you today and said, I have 30 stadium dates, unless they, uh, Taylor Swift wanted them all on sale in one day, but as the ticketing company, if the act was open to another take, would you say, let's not do it that way. Let's do it market by market or 50% one day, 50% the next week. Yeah, I think the, the lesson obviously is we should, we should spread the load. <laughs> That's the given. Um, but Bob, Bob, I want to just state something so we don't get it wrong. I am not against secondary, just to be clear where I stand. Because you are right. Secondary is an incredible distribution platform right now, meaning you're right. They buy a lot of tickets, and they help out a lot of on sales. And in the sports business, it's, it's very valuable because that's how a lot of people sell their 80 games. I'm not against uh, – I'm not saying that we should outlaw secondary, although that would be – the, the simplest way to fix it all, right, is Garth said on stage, just just outlaw it. Um, but that's not going to happen in America. I'm I'm fine on the idea that tickets should be exchanged. Um, I, I'm first though big believer that the artist should have the ability to decide. And I know that sounds not as simple as it is, but right now, as you said, some artists don't care, some do. Right now, I can't. You know, there's as you know, the secondary lobbyists are doing a great job state by state dressed up in fancy bills around service fees to say don't let transferability get changed right that's the core challenge right now and they've convinced a lot of people that 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 we must be the bad guy because we want to limit transferability and we only want the ticket at Ticketmaster and resold at Ticketmaster. that's not the agenda at all um i believe that the pdf that used to be on the airline and used to be you know in the hotel um, went digital. And just like you used to be able to walk up on the airline, the digital ticket, when it went to PDF, went to digital, means you can do things with it now. You can have some level of control. And I do believe when Pearl Jam or an artist says, you know what, I don't want my secondary ticket resold at a premium. We could execute that. Or I don't care. You know what, I want it sold. I want. I only want a 25% uplift on, on the secondary. I'm fine if people make money, but I don't want to make in 300%. We could deliver that. As an industry, not just Ticketmaster, um, and or I don't care, exchange it wherever you want, free for all. Great, then then let the market deliver. Um, but right now, you if if we don't stop some of this legislation, the legislation's moving towards you know this idea that you can never have a non-transferable ticket rule. And I never said that I want this to happen because I only want the ticket resold at Ticketmaster. Should I'm fine if it's resold everywhere. You know, the NFL, I think, is the great example on what we delivered on exchange. So the NFL used to have a system where we would pay the NFL to be an ex- the secondary preferred partner. But it meant nothing because Ticketmaster would have secondary tickets, but so would everyone else. So I was paying the NFL a lot of money, but you could go get all your same 
tickets at Subhub SeatGeek. They just didn't have the NFL logo or they didn't have a few things. So NFL smartly sat with us five years ago and said, how do we like capture it all so it's more organized? And we, we put a system forward that said, listen, we should deliver an exchange for you. We should make sure that SeatGeek and StubHub and others have to abide by the exchange rules. And, and, and then that way they're authorized. And everyone should be able to sell the tickets. But they're all authorized. They're playing by the NFL rules. And the NFL can take a percentage of those fees. So the NFL exchange today is an exchange where if, if you if SeatGeek, StubHub have been authorized, they pay the NFL a, 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 an, a, an advance versus a percentage. And all of these platforms are authorized NFL resellers now, like an authorized Rolex reseller. But it, but it means they have to play by the rules. They can't spec sell. They can't put Super Bowl on sale before it's announced. Play, let's all play by the same rules so the NFL fan knows what they're doing. Now, there's a couple exchanges like Vivid that don't participate in the program and still do it on their own. But it's a big move forward where you had multiple platforms playing by the same rule uh, addressed by the NFL. That's the model I think we should get to, right? Where Access, SeatGeek, StubHub, Live Nation, Ticketmaster, you know, um, if the artist says, this is the rule I want to play, a 25% premium on my ticket, then we should all all execute that on our digital ticket and honor it and be authorized to do it. Or if there's no exchange, like SeatGeek did with um, with um, the Cure, great. Then let's all, none of us got to turn on the exchange. None of us made money on the secondary business, but that's what the artists wanted. We played that way. Other kinds, artists won't, won't be that up, obsessed with it. Let the market exchange, let the market run free. Great. So I'm not against secondary. I don't, I think we're an American market free enterprise. We're never going to get to a place where you're, you're going to ban it. I don't want to pretend we have fake rules around bots and it doesn't work. I'd love spec selling. I would love all these deceptive websites and all of these things to go away and be. Uh, be cleaned up. Like you could get that done by FTC tomorrow. Um, and I do, I do believe that content should have the right on the ticket, just like the sports teams get to do whatever they want. There's they they define the rules of the game for their sports league. I think the artist should be able to say this tour. I want it my way. This way. If I'm Zach Bryan, I want to do it this way, or or I don't care, or I do care. Um, but right now, so I, I I'm I'm a big fan of that. I think content. And the artists should control uh, and put the rules. We have the technology as an industry in digital now to be able to do that. Um, so that just I want to state that I'm not an anti-secondary. I'm a. Um, a well, I want to I want to weigh in here too because the public does not have clean hands. They want to resell, and unfortunately, they get caught up in what the secondary legislation is uh, saying. The other thing is, if you make it too tight, the public isn't happy. You're right. The so public wants to know, if I decide that I want to go to the show tomorrow and there's no limit to what I, I will pay, there will be a ticket for me. It's, it's, you're dead right. It's the challenge of you know, the, the voices on Twitter versus the reality of the marketplace, right? And as you think you've written about, I had a fan write me last week about some Taylor Swift show. And I'm like, I went online. So there's, there's tickets, lots of tickets available at a decent price. Um, you can still go see Taylor. Um, so you're right. Fans want it their way when they want it. They've been accustomed to that on 
every other platform and marketplace today. Um, so you're right. I, it is a it is a double edged sword right now on how do you how do you try to uh, uh, deliver some level of secondary legislation or rules that would simplify the system for the on sale really all you're trying to solve. Um, but you're right. The free enterprise of the American market says, I want to do whatever I own that ticket and I want to do whatever the hell I want with it. Um, the challenge we have though, Bob is it's not, you know, I'm not worried about Billy uh, that, you know, the legend, the lobbyists are so great at doing, you know, Billy in Texas, just he's going, he's paying for school by selling a couple tickets. We're not worried about him. That's not the problem being created at 10 AM. It's the bots at 10 a.m. that are the challenge right now. So we, if we can address that part, at least then the casual secondary seller or the seller, we're less worried about him, but we have to address the first part on the 10 a.m. free-for-all right now um, is not being done by, you know, Billy who wants to sell a couple tickets. It is industrialized. You're CEO of the company. How much of your time is dedicated to managing your stock price and your stock price now is a little depressed from where it was to what degree do you pay attention to that? Address that. Yeah. Listen, I don't want to sound like that guy that says I don't ever look at it. Of course I do. Uh, I've lived long enough now from when we went public. Uh, I've been $2. I've been 20. I've been a hundred. Um, uh, I do say that, you know, what, what I spend most of my time on is ultimately what matters in any company, whether it's my stock or AEG's private company or your own is, a, is the business growing? Um, how's the fundamentals of the business? Cause the, the, the stock price will ultimately follow performance and you're always going to have, when you're as big as we are and been doing it this long, there's going to be moments of, you know, we'll have a little DOJ overhang for a few months or this year while they, well, the investors debate what that means or doesn't mean. All I really care, though, uh, I obsess around the performance. That part is what really matters. You don't want to be having a depressed stock and having a business that isn't uh, growing and healthy and and has a great future ahead of it. So I'm uh, I'm blown away at the resilience of this business, Bob, coming out of COVID. I mean, I'm I, I get that you know we had a little bit of a pent up demand. Um, but seeing the continuation of it on a global basis, um, is, is just, just mind blowing, whether that's truly that experience economy on, uh, on, on steroids, your point of content being free everywhere and driving all these customers, uh, globalization of it overnight where, you know, we're doing 10 sold out river stadiums for Coldplay right now. Um, my middle of the road festivals are selling out. Bands more than ever want to have a uh, have a great experience. Um, so that's that's the part that your stock is is you know you kind of in your mind debate. The stock price is only relevant if you if you uh, if you don't think your business is going to deliver. Then that's a those 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 kind of companies are in trouble. This is a business where. This is an industry. Forget my own agenda. This is an industry that for the next five to 10 years is going to have an incredible boom. Um, yes, we're going to live with some PR realities that the ticket price and the artists are going to start charging a bit more and right-sizing their product and, 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 and taking some of that secondary and there'll be some news around that. But 
this is an industry that is, I think, still massively underpriced, still doesn't do a great job experientially. So lots of great venues are going to be built, better venues, better uh, experiences, higher end premium experiences. Um, I think there's a lot of upsiding, upsides in this industry. When I look at the sports industry and, and almost how well they've done, look at the Masters, you know, $490 per head spent that weekend. Um, sports has really done a much better job at, you know, the high end. Not, and I don't mean, again, it doesn't mean the rich people experience the just if I want to go to the Masters or I want to go to the Super Bowl or I want to go to the NBA All-Star Game or the, or just the new arena for the end for the uh, Chargers game. That's a beautiful arena with a lot of great clubs and VIP rooms. Um, we've been, you know, I think as an industry, we've been playing backwards behind on the ball and all that. So I think as an industry, you're going to see better venues built, better new products being built around experiential stuff, um, more globalization more than ever. Um, and and more of these great artists that you know bad bunny and international where it, it didn't it didn't matter before international i've been in 40 countries and for most years there was always a tragically hip in that market but it didn't matter they weren't really going to break what mattered was springsteen coming to the market and you just been able to see my local markets now um where that's that tragically hip does matter now because they get a tiktok hit or they get some exposure and everyone knows who they are now. Um, they're not they're not limited by that kind of domestic media agenda. So I think you got a huge supply of artists that are going to surprise us from all over the world. Um, so stock price will will ultimately follow uh, the performance of our company, and I think this is an industry worth betting on. Okay, well, you talk generally about the industry, but specifically, where are the growth opportunities for Live Nation and Ticketmaster? Uh, I've, I've said it for a while, you know, it's a global is our biggest kind of, you know, I've always been obsessed with outside of the America growth. We've got a great U.S. business. There's, there's great opportunities to still do things. Um, but just grow, you know, this business is Latin America has just been a huge new growth area. Uh, obviously, we bought Ocesa in, in COVID. That was the uh, big promoter. We've, uh, uh, we've obviously have a bunch of businesses in Brazil. We just launched a new festival this week in Brazil called The Town uh, from our Rock and Rio company. Sold 130,000 tickets on a on its opening day. Brand new festival, Rock and Rio. So we like international. I think you're going to see a lot of um, a lot of expansion in South America, uh, Asia. We continue to expand in. So globalization. There are tons of markets, Bob, where there's crappy arenas. There's Maybe a festival is an under, probably a crappy ticketing system, um, maybe no sponsors, uh, you know, so you kind of professionalize these businesses when you roll in, you launch Live Nation Brazil, and we just launched our Ticketmaster Brazil. We upgraded this, the, um, the the festival team there. We're going to build a, an arena there and a club there. We launched, we brought Lollapalooza to those markets. Um, so we, we look, bring Lollapalooza to India. Um, launching um, some new businesses in Cape Town and Africa. So all about international, tons of great growth opportunity. Uh, number two is we've really, through COVID, really put a front foot forward on our venue development. And it's something we had not historically uh, been as aggressive in on the higher end. We had been more a club theater, amphitheater business. Um, and then we stuck our toe out in Austin with OVG and, and owned that building in Austin, that arena 
been a home run uh, success. So we've been looking at markets where uh, outside of mo mostly outside of America, where you don't have that NBA, NHL, beautiful arena. Um, we have a we have a, a, a an arena now in Dublin, one in uh, Copenhagen, Portugal. You know, got a few others in the pipe with OBG and Latin America and Asia. So I think venue development is a is a big opportunity. Uh, going back to our math earlier, Bob, you know it's a vertical business, right? So the more the more vertical you are um, with the content and the food and the beverage and the peanuts, you, you, the, the better your business is. So you'll see us continually. Uh, uh, like a net Netflix analogy, I guess is you want to rent a lot of shows and put them in other venues, but you got to have a lot of your homegrown brewed shows in your own venues and festivals where they're higher margin. So we'll keep expanding our global venue platform. Um, so international global expansion, um, and you know every time you put a new venue, you you open up a bigger sponsorship opportunity and a and a ticketing opportunity in those markets. So I think you'll see for the next five years. We told the, the market, geez, we did about 50 million fans four or five years ago. There were over 125 million, meaning they went to a Live Nation show in 22. I think we've now told them we're, we, we can see 150 to 175 over the next five years uh, of fans going to our show. So we think the pie gets bigger globally. Our market share just growing. If the pie gets bigger, we get bigger. Um, and before we have to even take more market share in entering new markets that we're not in. So we think this is a global business that'll grow and is, and will all obviously grow as the, as the tide goes up. Now, North America is pretty myopic. They don't really know what's going on in these other countries. What is the market share and who are the competitors of Live Nation around the world? Well, you have CTS in Germany. They're uh, done a good job there. Um, and then most of the markets that you're going to go to are going to have, let's call it the golden voices, right? They're going to have a, a local and grain promoter. I mean, Japan is a big market, big market, second largest market in the world. And we have no market share there, really small. And there's four historic promoters there that have owned the market. Um, so you got to figure out how to be in business with one of those four. Um, we've launched Live Nation Japan. We're bringing artists there. Um, but generally in a marketplace that matters, um, there's a, an established Merrick Lieberberg is a promoter that probably owns the market market um, and, and has two other competitors. So still a local business where there'd probably be a festival and a, and a, and a promoter in those markets um, with their good, you know, good scale within their current market. Australia is the same as, you know, three or four old time promoters own the market there. We bought one of them, Koppel. Um but so you, you tend to have to go into those markets. There's probably one or two historic promoters that own the market. We tend to try to partner with one of them and then help them supercharge their business by bringing tours and sponsorship and, uh, and capital. So what's a typical day in the life of Michael Rapino? <laughs> Jeez. Uh, stressful now. Um, thanks to the, uh, Check my Twitter uh, feed and may see who's see who's mad at me that day. Um, but you know, I think it's it's. I think listen. Whoa, 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 no whoa, 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 whoa! Let's slow down there. You're a CEO. How much time do you spend on Twitter? And and what's your feeling about Musk running it and where it's going? Um. Well, that's a loaded one. Listen, Twitter. 
you, you know, it's an addiction you hate, right? Because you know, you know, you know, they don't go on there and say, thanks. So thankful. I got great tickets today. Um, so it's, it's only the pissed off that are going to go hit you up. Um, but I do think it, you know, it is a, it, you know, as Kara Swisher and, and Prof G, who we both like talk about, you know, it's still a damn good lightning rod to figure out what's going on in the world. Right. I mean, you still go to that, I go to that trending explore page and just quickly go, what's going on. And, um, I, I still think it is an incredible lightning rod and a quick way to figure out whatever the drama of the day is going on in the world. So, um, uh, I think, I think he's, you know, I think he's a, you know, obviously a genius, but I, I can't imagine why he wanted this, this mission. This is a, this is not a fruitful mission to come, come back to. Um, but I think, um, so, you know, I, listen, my job, I would say you're the, 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 the reality is the one thing that has changed is in the world. It's a much more complex to run a comp business today. I mean, there's a lot of voices right every day. So I think that's a new part of the business. You have to figure, you have to spend time on that You didn't before, you know, mostly you're going to spend your time on your strategy and your business and your divisions. And, and, and we're, we got a credible global team and that's where I spend most of my day dealing with my team's internal and figuring out what talent we're buying and what models and venues and strategy we're pursuing. Um, and I think that the, Wait, just right there, to what degree do you delegate? To what degree do you get your hands dirty? Oh, my team would, you know, they know I'm still nuts. This is, this is my baby. I'm, I'm night and day here. I'm three feet and 30,000 feet. I, I, you know, I, I really look at running a business and I love it still. Um, you know, one of the realities of being a CEO is, you know, I always say there's kind of three things you can spend time on your family, your business, and a lot of the external stuff. And the external stuff is gratifying for, for, for a lot of people. Um, but you can't do all three. Um, something breaks. So, um, I'm pretty obsessed with my three boys and making sure I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good dad and snowboarding and all the things you and I have talked about. Um, and then two is I'm internal focused. I really believe it's, it's my team needs me. So I'm, you know, uh, every Tuesday at two and a half hours, my concert team and Wednesday is ticket master for two hours and sponsorship Thursday and venues. And so I go, I'm, I'm a, I'm an active parent making sure all these divisions have access to me, help them cut through bureaucracy, make good decisions, deal with drama. Um, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm, uh, I go deep and stay, stay very engaged. And as you know, you, one of your famous lines about the bunker, I'm, I'm an introvert. So I, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time on the external. Uh, I figured that all, that all comes with good results and all that, you know, the, the good strategy and good results take care of the profile and the other things. But, um, so that's kind of my day. Are you reachable 24 seven? Are you working 24 seven? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, that's the, that's the curse for sure. Um, artists, middle of the night, whoever it is, I'm, I'm always available. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, listen, it's a gift we, we run an incredible fun industry. I came from nothing and, and to be able to sit here and work with some of these great artists and have access and be uh, part of their lives and help them deliver. And it's, 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 it's a pleasure. And why are Canadians so prominent and, uh, play above their weight in the concert industry i don't know you know I, I i do think this one you know is so when i was in toronto 
I, mean, I thought Michael Cole and this idea of touring was an everywhere experience. Um, I, I didn't really understand that that was such a uniqueness that you bought multiple. So um, when, uh, when, when Steve Herman and I started Core Audience and you know, we bought tours across the country, we bought the Rod Stewart tour for the country. Um, you bought 14 dates and it was, you know, huge money for us at that time. And I remember we, remember we bought Janet Jackson from, uh, Jack, remember Jack, you what was his name? The guy that went to jail, Jack. Oh yeah. Jack Utsik. Yeah. Utsik. Yeah. Oh man. He was a character. What a character. He had awful. We bought Janet Jackson lost $400,000 and we went to Mel's diner that night and thought, how are we going to pay for this? So when you buy tours, it was a section only when I moved to America. And then Europe, I really realized that the promoter, as rich as he was, and as great, he never left town. Like Don Law made a fortune living in Boston, or um, um, and whoever they, Larry Larry Maggot in Philly, Merrick Lieberberg in Germany. So their market, they were just buying these. You know, they were buying their market. Um, so this idea that you know um, that I that, that that Michael in Canada, you were buying tours, it just was so foreign to these people. Because you just you never crossed the lines here, as you know. It was the it was the the mafia, right? You had Philly, you didn't buy in New Jersey, and um, so I do think out of necessity in Canada, because you you didn't buy Toronto, you bought the world. Michael broke that model for me and Cole and Jerry Baird and Omar and myself and Steve Herman. We just that's the model we thought was right. So I think that did excel us because I think it it, it, it when I was sitting in the room. I was able to talk about a bit more complexity than just one market. And, and, and in Canada, uh, you know, you had Quebec, you had some different geographies, you know, you had the second largest landmass in the, in, the, in the world. So it wasn't like they were close markets. So you were managing a cross country business. Um, and I think that was really, really in the concert world that was so decentralized still that, that, uh, and still is still there's still a fight for 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 the local promoter as you know versus the tour still that battle exists um so i think i think that kind of just unlocked why the concert business moved fast with 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 michael uh, and that cpi model when he broke that model in the stones and, and kind of pushed that forward we all looked at it and thought that was business as usual i didn't realize till i moved here uh, how much they hated us in, in terms of michael in that and that model and, and the stones and, and and that history of breaking that local model, so I, I guess that that was a bit of it. Needless to say, to be an artist, people have no idea what a backbreaking job it is. So, to what degree are residencies like Harry Styles, and to what degree is Vegas, where the act where the audience comes to the act, is that just going to be a stasis thing? Is that going to grow? Well, as a side note, you just hit on one thing on going back to pricing. You're dead right. These artists, first of all, to go on the road right now is expensive. And um, to run a venue is expensive. But as you know, everything has increased dramatically. I, I mean, every cost went up. If you look at the ticket price increases from 2019 to today, they, they, you know, they've gone up 19%. But but so did labor, rentals, lighting, transportation, and gas, right? So um, the costs are, are expensive for these artists. Um, they're all in, they're all want to have the greatest production arms race. So their production costs are, are intense now. Um, you, you can see Taylor's show or Beyonce's and 
Madonna's, what they put on that stage. It's, it's, it's crazy, um, expensive. Um, so you are right. There are, I think Vegas has unlocked this idea that I could, I could have a bit of a life and still deliver an incredible gross. So the, I think Adele really, really ch- took it to the next level of being a modern artist that could have just done a stadium tour and decided to, to sit in Vegas for a while. Um, so um, I, I think you're going to see, you know, the Harry style, 15, 15 venue, 15 amphitheaters or 15 uh, arenas. Um, but I would back up and say every artist that you talk to knows that ultimately when they get to the market, they make lifelong fans. You don't make a lifelong fan on Spotify. You make it when you show up at the city and they see you in stage and live. So every artist will still talk to me about they got to go play the world. Like they get that model. Now, I think once you've done it a few times, yes, then you can start saying, do I need to go back to South America or can I, I'm going to do 30 dates and I'm going to pick five cities. So I think you're going to see a bit of those models where the artist will say, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll play five markets. I'll play London and, and, um, you know, New York and Miami and, 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 and Brazil and, 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 and try to do more residency that way. So I, I do think the cost of production, transportation, and the wear and tear, um, I think you'll start to see some of those models emerge where they won't do the 100 dates, but they'll do 60, but they'll be in five cities, not 50 cities. But, but I would say it all depends on your life cycle, right? Every artist knows, Coldplay knows right now that they're making worldwide global fans for life. They'll run around the world. Maybe there's a point where they say, okay, we won't run as far now that we've done it but they all know they got to go they all everyone in the touring business and you know has the stories of the artists that didn't do it and why they're not today able to be that global star and then there's the metallica model and lars on why they're selling and and then their brand is so big forever or the or the u2 model the stones model so most people look at that model and go okay if i'm gonna have longevity if i'm gonna make money forever and be a, 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 a global brand, I got to go actually do those 100-date global tours. Um, but I think you're right. There'll be artists now that once you've done it three or four times, start to say, can I still make money doing that, sitting down in a city? And that's that's definitely happening. Okay, what's the health of the festival market? You talked about that great on sale in Brazil. So... We had a couple of huge festivals, Coachella, Lollapalooza, Bonnaroo, and then there were a million imitators. What's the health of the market now? You know, if you'd asked me a few years ago, I might have said I was worried that there was the headline, kind of the the, the big ones that made it. Um, And there were a lot in the middle trying to be big, but didn't have soul. What I see today is, you know, if you are the, if you've crossed the line like Coachella obviously has, or Lollapalooza, um, Glastonbury, um, EDC, um, th- th- they seem to be passage of right. So they, they, there, there's, and there's Rock and Rio in Brazil and uh, Rector in B- Belgium. There tends to be one of those in every market and they're Reading leads. They're fine. I think where the market got smart and we're seeing success is, oh, quickly the market, whoever you are realized you can't just rent this field and put drake billy joel 
and Little Wayne on. Like that kind of idea that there was that was happening everywhere. The festivals had, you know, wherever they were. We had some, everyone had them. And I think quickly those those got killed quickly. You you realize you lost three million bucks. Who you didn't stand for anything. Um, and and then what happened though, I'm seeing now is they quickly went to these one and two dayers, these nicher ideas that have more focus. And we're having a really, really big success with these this year. Um, you know, when when we were young last year in Vegas, and again this year, one day, two day festival, but really meant to be a one day. Um, Tim Sweetwood's got a few we got this year, C and C. we just did one on the weekend. Charlie Walker texted me. I didn't even know we were doing it in Texas a one day. So what I'm seeing is either you were already made it to the big the big league and you're established and you just got to keep reinventing that brand and do what you do at the top end, or you're probably playing for a location or a niche idea that Bottle Rock, for example, where or the market or the idea is niche enough to be a better experience, but it's a, probably a one day, maybe it's two on a, on, 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 a, on a good day. But So I think you've seen a lot of those pop up now where the risk is less. You're not betting on a three-day, $14 million uh, all-in idea that's, that's this multi-genre festival. I think those are died. You've got to now be a more single-shot festival that stands for something. Um, and that idea that festivals, you know, that old idea that you could, uh, you know, put it in the middle of anywhere, it doesn't work anymore. Like you got to put that festival where you and I want to go on Saturday anyways. So why it works in Vegas, why it works in Palm Springs, but you can't put them in the middle of nowhere anymore. They, people want to, want to, want to go to a, to either a destination or a town or a location where, um, it's already got built in cool factor or, or, um, or destination. So. Um, so I think it's actually in a good space because I think a lot of, we had a lot in the middle. We had a, some of those in the middle where you, you're betting big, you're trying to be the next Coachella. You're never going to get there. You're trying to be the next Lollapalooza. So you're almost stuck in the middle. You don't stand for any, you know, I always joke with my team, you know, a bad logo, a Ferris wheel, a, an artist village and three headliners. And they think they have magic, right? And it, it was formula, but it wasn't standing for anything. So. We're seeing in the UK, here, Europe, if you're starting smaller and simpler, you're, you're probably going to have success. And you're also, in our view, you can start five or six of those a year. And if two don't make it, you're not, you're not going down for 10 million. Um, they're, they're simpler to start more. And if they got a flash like when's we were young, when we were young was on, that you know, we put one day on and I'm selling 140,000 tickets. Uh, if you hit a little mark, uh, an idea that can run, then you can run with it, but you don't start in a multi-genre big idea. So top end seems to be doing, I mean, Coachella did well. We're having a record year in Lollapalooza. Bonnaroo is roared back. So I'm thrilled. I mean, the Lollas outside of America are doing really well. Rock and Rio. So the big boys and, and, uh, and kind of the established ones seem to be doing really well this year. Um, and I think if you're starting something smaller and, niche you're probably going to be okay what we miss what do you have to tell my audience that we didn't cover well i think we talked i mean listen i think the idea that you know it's a it's we're not a perfect business but i think the industry of the venues and the cost that they're incurring i don't think you know i think people just have to not 
everyone's going to understand or have sympathy. But being a guy that owns a lot of venues, I looked at my venues this morning, you know, my amphitheaters, we, you and I have talked about this before. My amphitheaters lost $143 million at the door. So you wonder why I have a $20 service fee, right? That means I'm paying not just a hundred percent of the door. I'm paying a hundred and something percent of the door, right? So you got to pay for that somehow, right? So you got to pay for the parking, the, the booze, the, 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 you know, the food. So th this is an industry where your CapEx is going up, your costs are going up and your artist costs are going up. Um, so guess what? That means the fees are going to go up or revenue has to be generated to cover the costs. Um, none of them are, none of them are, are evil in themselves. They're all part of the plot that says to put a great show on in a great venue with the right staff and the, and the insurance and the CapEx and all the things that come with putting a show on, it costs this much. And I think we're finally as an industry ready. I think we will move towards that all in because my, my point is the artists should take all the money. They deserve it. They should charge more. Um, and the venues deserve to, to figure out how to pay for those venues um, and put that show on. So uh, I just think as an industry, we're, we're, we've got to we presented it in a way that we can no longer proceed with um, because it's not defendable the way it's broken out today. Um, so I think that's, you know, you, you've been always, it's a, it's, a, it's a complex problem. I mean, I meet with, you meet with a senator or a congressman, they just they look at you and like, oh my God, the service fee, and you try to explain why the service fee at the, you know, and then you talk about the hockey game down the street and why the service fee and who the scalper is and why the scalper. I mean, it's a complex industry, hard to win any public opinion polls on on explaining it. So it's a challenge in that front. Um, but I do think you know we talk about the the crisis in the last year has been our opportunity to actually start talking about it because i think i think we'll be better for it in the end whether it's the all in pricing the fair some legislation will happen around secondary there's enough movement now around that i think there'll be something that'll come around all in and or um secondary so i think that's a step forward um because it's a sideshow to the actual great growth that the industry has and what do you look for in hiring somebody? You know, it's it's always a challenge. Your your, your batting rate is 60 percent. Um, it's usually the i the IQ is easily. It's it's usually I'm looking for EQ, right? A lot of smart smart people can get things done, but this is a rare industry where you can you can come from Harvard. It don't matter. Can you actually get things done with people? Um, you know, I, I joke that I, you know, I went to university and got an accounting and psychology degree and I need them both every day here. <laughs> um, because this is not about, this isn't whether I have great strategy. I, I tomorrow could write down the April Fool's idea you had, which was fabulous. I could give you the 13 things we should do tomorrow to make this a better industry. It's irrelevant because I got a lot, I got to herd a lot of cats. We got to move a whole industry and a lot of agendas. Um, at, at odds and we got to find like uh, common ground that we can move it somewhere forward um, and move the business forward uh, so we get lots you know we'll hire them in sponsorship sometime and they'll come from somewhere and they have these great ideas and you know if we could just get Beyonce to go on stage to do it it's like okay that's not going to work so you know it's a it's an interest industry where you know we, we you, you got to understand and bring people in that definitely have the IQ but can they manage 
understand our industry well enough to make sure we can move the people, manage the egos involved, put your ego aside, and hopefully try to get something done. Okay. You're in your mid-50s. How long are you going to do this? This is a business where people tend to work in touring till they drop, unlike on the record side. And as we've discussed before, you know, Liberty has a position in Live Nation. Uh, Greg Maffei is active, as they have in Sirius. They have other interests. Could you ever be tempted to take a different job, another job? Um. Well, so, you know, Greg does uh, read your emails because he forwarded me your April Fools. He said, <laughs> I didn't, he said, I didn't think I had any, he said, see, I must have power. Um, now, Liberty's been a, Greg and John have been incredible shareholders. Um, they're, they're, they've been fabulous shareholders to date. Um, no, I think this is, um, listen, I think the, you listen, you got to be self-aware as the CEO. So trust me, I don't take anything for granted. I know, um, I'm not on the golf course. I, I, I get. I, 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 I don't do this for money. I do it because I love it. Um, but I do think. Um, I think we have another chapter left. So I think there's. I think there's another another move and another chapter left. We, you know, when I launched this company, we're a few hundred million dollar market cap. We we started to build. Uh, we went global. Ticketmaster was a huge moment to, to differentiate our business. Um, I think I got a few other moves in the in the playbook still that can make us a different business so i'd like i'd like to i'd like to you know this new five-year deal i have um i think we got some some moves left in the tank in this five years um I, I, i'm certainly not going to go run another business at this level um you know i you know i, I guess never as long and uh, I, I love disney and other companies but i don't think i'm i'm uh, I think I got. I think I got a, a trick or two left here that we can unlock and make this an exciting place. Um, and and I think that's the way I, uh, I I finished the game. Okay, Michael. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak to my audience. You've been very open and honest and forthcoming, and I thank you for that. Thank you, Bob. Much appreciated. Till next time. This is Bob Left Sense. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.